Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Sam. Sam, how are you? I'm doing all right, Don. How are you? I am just sitting over here recovering as hard as I possibly can. You look like you're tweaking a little bit. You know, I'm tweaking. Uh, tweaking, messing with all those knobs and buttons and jacks, and you're going to start taking things apart any moment now, aren't you? I thought that was like a metaphor for using drugs. Well, it is that too, you know. <laughs> I'm just tweaking a little bit. It has nothing to do with those five shots of espresso in your Sam Bucks coffee, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do drink a lot of coffee. Well, you know, I I think I heard you saying something earlier about how uh, just because you stop drinking alcohol doesn't mean you drink any less. That's completely true. <laughs> <laughs> just because I quit drinking alcohol doesn't mean I quit drinking a lot. Give me something to drink at all times. In fact, we were talking with our guest, Amber, who's here. Hi, Amber. Hey. Hey, Amber. And uh, you were saying something about getting a cup holder. <laughs> Yeah, so on Amazon, I found that they have cup holders for your shower, which reminded me um, of my drinking days because I used to drink in the shower. So I thought that was a really interesting thing. And who would need that besides alcoholics? <laughs> who wants to go the, the amount of time it takes to take a shower without drinking, too? I mean, that's well, a you long know. time. I bet they have one that like holds teacups, too, for the British. <laughs> Hold your finger out to take a shower and have a sip of my brandy Alexander. <laughs> well, Amber, thanks for coming today. Absolutely. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. When did you get sober? Um, November 15th, 2011. So two th November 15th, 2011. What was going on that day? in your life? Um, well, I was probably at my lowest point in the previous like six months before. I had left my husband and um, started having an affair with my boss. And then my boss said, you know, that I was too messed up of a person, so he couldn't see me anymore. And I went out in October, October 23rd, and um, drank and drove for the second time. And of course, I got caught. And so um, I woke up in jail that morning and I thought, okay, you know, I need help. And I got out, but I really didn't know what to do. So I was drinking and calling rehabs. I was probably like at my lowest point. And I was originally supposed to go into rehab on November 2nd. But being the good alcoholic that I am, I... Um, you know, said, well, the lady never called me back and told me my insurance was accepted. <laughs> and so I didn't go. And so um, you weren't that excited about going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any excuse is a good one, right? Yeah. You know, my, I my, knew my, I needed my shower that. beer holder didn't come in. <laughs> exactly. You know, because I used to love to drink in the shower. And so, you know, well, that, so you had looked at going into rehab, rehab before. Well, Right after the last DUI I had, which was uh, in October, and I got sober in November. Was that when, more a case of like trying to fix your troubles than really wanting to quit drinking? Yeah, because, you know, I'd gotten in trouble with the law, obviously, with that DUI. And I was like, okay, if I go to rehab, you know, that will look really good for me yeah. in court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but as the weeks, like, went on, you know, because it was probably about three weeks after that when I got sober... Life was not getting any better, and, you know, I was just getting to a super low point. Like, that actual day started out, like, normal. I went to work, and then I was planning on going to a concert with my friend. And, you know, I couldn't even make it through the work day that day without sneaking off and drinking. I thought to myself, okay, you know, like, this is not normal, and I really need to get some help. And so that night after the concert, I was in a blackout. 
And my friend was like, I don't know what to do with you. You're going to detox because she was supposed to be taking me to rehab before. And I kept making excuses. So that night I went to detox and woke up the next morning in detox. And I was like, okay, you know, I told those people, I was like, this is the rehab I looked into and I'd like to go here. Okay. So the day started out normal, you know, but it got to a point where I was drinking every single day, like at work. And yeah. sometimes doing other substances as well to try to keep myself awake. Yeah, you were you would fall asleep if you didn't drink, or you were just staying up all night and partying. Well, and... I'd stay up all night. I did like a combination of doing an upper and alcohol, you mm-hmm. know, to try to balance the two out because I wanted to drink. But you know, I'd still be awake at seven o'clock the next morning when I needed to go into work, and so I needed that substance to try to help me. But if I didn't drink, I felt disgusting like i'd be all shaky and nauseous and horrible you know start going through withdrawals that sounds like a really fun existence (laughs) yeah you know totally convinced i'm sure at some point you were convinced you were still having fun and then that changed is that kind of how that went yeah well at that point it was not fun anymore like it was a horrible existence. I uh, was just depressed and cried every single day. Yeah. Like, because more or less, you know, I left my husband. The guy, you know, that I was seeing, you know, didn't want to see me anymore because I was too messed up of a person. You know, I was losing friends because I was constantly lying. I would lie about the smallest things. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you, uh, you went to rehab. I did go to rehab. So you heard about AA and rehab? Um, Actually, someone I had um, done some work with before had actually, you know, because they could see that I was going on the downhill, actually recommended, um, what is that treatment center in High Point? Yeah, Daymark. Daymark. And so actually I contacted them first and they're like, you can't go here because you have insurance. And so, like I said, so I went online and I was looking for places in Greensboro and that's where I found Fellowship Hall. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and I was there, you know, the morning of November 15th. How so long? that was where you detoxed as well? No, I actually, de- uh, well, I wasn't there the morning of November 15th. So I detoxed in Wesley Long for a couple days, and then they transferred me, I think, on the 17th. So my first official day was the 17th at Fellowship Hall. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So two days in the hospital. And then det- Obviously uh, then- needed that. You were drinking around the clock. Yes, yeah. yeah. So yeah. what was it like? It was horrible. Um, I was a shell, like, of a person. You know, I didn't even recognize myself anymore. Constantly feeling sick, not really eating because of the substances I was taking. I was just in a miserable existence, super depressed. Yeah, it's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depressing well, and for, like, a long time, I thought I had my life together because, you know, I... Still had a job, and I still had this, and, you know, all of these things, so I'm not as bad as these people. Oh, yeah, there (laughs) is so much that can make us, like, I'm still okay. I'm Mm -hmm. still okay. Yeah, there's always some way to compare myself so that I'm okay. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, I used to like to watch Intervention when I was drinking, and... um, I'd see people on there drinking like Listerine or rubbing alcohol, and I'm like, wow, those people yeah. are really bad. I'm not like that, you know? I'm just drinking normally. Yeah. You know, okay, so I had breakfast with a friend this morning, and, and we were talking about suicide attempts. You know, the suicide attempts I did over the years were, were fairly— Suicide <laughs> attempts in the past— not future ones. I'm not uh, planning it. No. We're, we weren't planning it. I'm okay. Just, yes. I didn't know if we good to know. need to. Uh, so uh, it's always a good question. Um, <laughs> but you know, the the, the I, you know, I wouldn't let myself have a handgun in my drinking days because I knew that I would wind up you know doing something with it. And so my suicide attempts throughout the years uh, were with pills and with like the vacuum cleaner hose on the car exhaust, things like that. And then my friend talked about the ways that he had done it, and, uh, and that was with a gun and, uh, and drinking antifreeze. And then I remembered a kid when I was committed as, uh, at 16 years old for, for suicide attempt. The kid that I was rooming with had drank gasoline. And so what I'm hearing is that thing of you talking about your drinking 
and I'm not that bad as those people on intervention, mm-hmm. but it's still a fucking suicide attempt. Definitely, I agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's that thing of my 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 suicide attempts weren't bad like those were, <laughs> but I still tried to kill myself. Um, and it was the same thing with my drinking. You know, I didn't lose much of anything. I had pretty much all my shit together as a drunk. But damn if my life didn't suck. And damn if I, my drinking was out of control. I mean, it was horrible. So I, I get what you're saying, though. That thing to compare. Oh, completely. I, Absolutely. My, my sponsor <laughs> so now got sober two years before I did. Uh-huh. And he was the first person I called when I came to AA. I didn't go to a treatment center. I came directly. I, in fact, I called him and said, I've, I got to quit. I need help. And I always compared to him because I remember his last night drinking. I saw him and he, you know, he was spilling stuff and he would like talk with a glass of wine in his hand and gesture. (laughs) I know who your sponsor is and I am laughing just picturing that. (laughs) Yeah. He's not. He's not loose, as loose as he was then. <laughs> he was quite loose <laughs> in, um, in every way. And he, <laughs> yeah, we all well. So I compared, this is getting really good, Don. I, so I, <laughs> yeah, I compared to him, and I always said that he was much worse than me. And even now, if I ever introduce him, this is uh, my sponsor, Philip, and. He's much worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. even in sobriety, you're doing that. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, still yeah. doing Progress, it. right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> limited. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a pick on Don Day, I think. <laughs> no, well, Don. now he's not worse than me. Now he's be- he's got two years over me. He's more spiritually evolved than me. I'm he's still, not a spiritual gas giant. I'm still I'm fo- following in his footsteps. he's an awesome man so what was uh when you came to aa uh, you got out treatment center and you came Mm -hmm. to aa what was that like i mean did you immediately start latch on to aa as a way to stay sober or did you have to yeah so um over time leaving the treatment center they had some suggestions for me and i was like okay i'm gonna do what they say you know because i want to stay sober and one of their first suggestions was was get into a recovery house. And so I went into a women's Oxford house. And for me, I think that was great because, like, I needed that structure, you know. You had to do chores. You had curfews. There were so many meetings you had to attend. And so I think that was really good for me. I think if I had left and, like, was on my own, I really wouldn't have connected with people. Mm-hmm. Because, like, at the time, like, really the only people I knew were my roommates and I'm like, okay, like take me to a meeting. I need to meet some people. I need to like make a network, you know, because that was also suggested by the treatment center to get a sponsor and get a network. And you so, latched on. Yeah, definitely. And then early on after I got my first sponsor, she was like, okay, you need to be involved in service. And so it was like little things of, you know, helping set up the meeting or making coffee or greeting people. But, you know, she ingrained in me how important service was. And so I had seen it work in her life and other people's lives. So I was willing to do what they said because I wanted to live a free life too. And that's how you do it, folks. That's how you do it. <laughs> and you've Seriously. stayed you, you've stayed sober since. Yes. Um, yeah. God willing, in November mm-hmm. off seven years. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So now you've been pretty active in young people's service, haven't you? I have. I'm actually um, serving on um, the Nikki Paw Advisory Council, which is the North Carolina Conference of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous. So early on in my sobriety, like young people's was like a big thing for me. I went to my first conference um, in 2012. At that time, you know, I really didn't know anything about it, but I kept hearing my sponsor talk about it, you know, Nikki Paw, Nikki Paw, Nikki Paw. So I went to my first conference and I thought, wow, this is really cool, you know, like involvement, like all these other young people like coming together and like staying sober and, you know, we can have a good life. So I thought it was a really cool concept because as a part of Nikki Paw, you get to help statewide, like 
all the alcoholics and now like as on the advisory council I get emails now from people like hey you know where are meetings how can I get involved I'm their special events chair and so this year I got to throw our annual camp out which is really really cool it was a lot of fun 2013 I came back from my second conference I was like hey guys who wants to help me bid for the conference and so I gathered up some people and we started a bid committee we bid the following year we didn't get it but what was really cool out of um that bid committee we formed PDPAW which is Piedmont Triad Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous and it's a local service structure for the people in the Piedmont Triad area so even though we didn't win the bid at that time we got to form a service structure that's still standing today that's helping alcoholics and putting on events, showing, um, you know, other young people that we can have fun in sobriety. So the, uh, the actual act of putting together something for the bid isn't necessarily just about the bid. No, not at all. You know, um, we felt we had the need in our area, you know, for a local service structure, like something for our young people, because we felt like at that time we were not very united at all. And we knew of other service structures throughout North Carolina that had, you know, their own, own service structures to help their young people. And so, like I said, we didn't get the bid, but out of that, we got that. And I feel like our young people in this area have become tight knit. And um, they, have, they have. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great area. Yeah, for I mean, them. it's one of the things that attracted me to, to YP and Greensboro as my home group. Nice. YP's got it going on. Yeah. So it's great now that the young people are established. We bid for the conference the following year, got the conference, and that was like a whole another year. So basically, it was three years in the making for us to actually put on this conference. That definitely kept me busy. But, you know, if I was going through anything, I had service to focus on, which was awesome. Like, okay, you know, I need to do these things. This conference depends on me to actually do what I say I'm going to do. Yeah, you're putting those things between you and a drink. Mm-hmm. The responsibilities and mm-hmm. service work that you're volunteering for. And-, and the connections that you make throughout that last in so many ways. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have made a lot of friends all over the state of North Carolina. I've made friends from out of the states going to different conferences. And it's like, okay, you know, if I'm traveling, I'm like, hey, you know, where are the meetings? Because I want to go to meetings when I'm out of town. You know, AA is just not strictly to Greensboro. My recovery is just not Greensboro. Uh So when I'm traveling, I need those meetings. And, you know, you meet so many different people with different experiences. And sometimes, you know, somebody might come to me with something and I'm like, well, I don't have experience, but I know someone who does. I love that. Yes. And, you know, they're never upset. They're always like, hey, you know, please tell people to call me. Um, you know, I had actually got connected with a friend in Raleigh who works with the jails and institutions Mm -hmm. and she had a lady coming to Greensboro and she's like, can I give this lady your phone number? She wants to come to meetings. And I'm like, absolutely. You know, and she's been to some meetings. I haven't seen her as much. I don't, you know, know how great she's doing in her recovery right now, but But I showed her the way. She had the contact. Yes, exactly. Mm. I'm happy to be a contact. How long was it when you got sober and started going to meetings before you could say that it was fun? I would say like in the first two months because I saw like different groups like putting on events so I could see that, you know, there was fun to be had. Yeah, you could see other people having fun. Yeah, I remember in particular the Uni Club hosted like this game night and I had like maybe 30, 45 days sober at the time. And I was like, okay, you know, like this is something I like to do. I was always loved to play games. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, like we can have fun. They're playing games. I love to play games. And it's just been showed to me throughout my sobriety. Like you can do anything, you know, sober that you did when you were drinking. And that has been twofold for me. Like it, it, it's definitely been that way. I mean, I've even gone out like dancing in clubs with other, you know, members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's like, I have no fear of going anywhere today. Yeah. 
Now, who would have thought that would be the case coming into AA? <laughs> Definitely not me, because I thought, you know, more or less my life was over. Like, how am <laughs> yeah. I going to have fun? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's the complete end of, of all. Okay. Oh I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be so boring. It's going to be awful, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. One long gray day. And that's not been in my experience. It's not boring. Um, we're definitely not a glum lot. And I have a super full life today, you know, with service and friends and my daughters. And, uh, you know, life's just gotten better. But um, one of the big staples was service, like I said, because I'm always thinking outside of myself. I um, wouldn't dance sober. <laughs> I guess it was, I was 10 years sober or so. And my son... Um, graduated and moved out of the house so we had empty nest thing going on so Mm -hmm. we decided to take dance lessons and we started contra dancing which is like square dancing in groups Hmm. one of the first times I went to that uh, I called up my sponsor and was going I don't know about this (laughs) this is you know I'm gonna do it but uh he said well be careful you might have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's the greatest line. You know, I got to go to uh, New York last year mm-hmm. for a, uh, a sobriety conference, a gay men's sobriety conference, and it coincided with Gay Pride in New York, which awesome. I had never gotten to go to, and I'm totally going to next year because this will be the 50th anniversary. We had a contingent in the parade and I got to dance that whole parade with this huge group of guys marching down <laughs> this, this street, which I don't know what, what Fifth Avenue or whatever, um, wow. in New York City, dancing the whole way. Now, you know, trudge the road of happy destiny. Mm, no, I'm a dance it. And, uh, <laughs> Can we put and a that video a of that up? Can we put a video of that up in the show notes? There, there are <laughs> pictures. <laughs> That's awesome. I was wearing a kilt. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, a lot of listeners yeah. don't know that you are almost always wearing a kilt. Yeah, I got a thing about kilts. Yeah. He's cute in kilts. Aw. <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's talk about doing the steps. Amber, what was one of the steps that ended up actually doing it was entirely different than what you expected it to be? Definitely the fourth step. You know, the first couple of steps, you know, I really like grasped them and I already had like a relationship with a higher power. So like one, two and three. But I get to four and people... Made a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Yeah. So... I get to three, I get to four. I think it's a lot of um, what you hear in the rooms and people kind of hype it up, like how bad the fourth step is. Don't they, though? They really do, and it's not not that bad. But at the time, you know, I was terrified of that. The thing, like, I really didn't want to look at was my sexual conduct. I was Mm. like, hmm, you know, like, I kept putting that off. But when I went on to, like, do the fist up with my sponsor it was like wow you know this is showing me so much and she was like pointing out patterns of behavior that i like completely miss that i don't like see even though it's like right there in yep. black and white and so it helped me learn a lot about me and my patterns and to quit playing the victim because i played the victim a lot like you don't understand, you know, like what it was like for me. And this didn't happen to you. And, you know, you didn't get in trouble with the law, you know. So I constantly played the victim. I but don't after... know anyone else who plays the victim <laughs> as Sam stares intently at Don. Get your eyes off of me. <laughs> so after doing the fourth and fifth step, well, the, you the, know. The fourth step and the fifth step, talking, mm-hmm. sharing it with another person, was the same with me. That's where I saw what my patterns are and what my patterns are that I fall into. Those are my character defects. Definitely. So mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what it's talking about. The, the whole point of it is to discover what are the ways that I operate unconsciously that don't work. And those character defects, they lead to trouble every time. Mm-hmm. And having that, that viewpoint of the sponsor helps, helps those blind spots because that's just it. I don't see it. It is a blind spot because to do it again and again, like I've, I made the same mistake again and again and again. And 
to look back on it and, you know, with a sponsor and point it out and go, oh, there's that again. Oh, there's that again. Oh, there's that again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, there is. Oh, they are related, aren't they? It's a real revelation. Yeah, I thought it was um pretty cool because basically, like, I'm seeing these patterns of behavior. So when I moved on to, like, six and seven, I could see those things. And I had already had them written in black and white, like, okay, these are my defects. You know, so it made a lot easier moving on with the steps after focusing on four and five and seeing those patterns of behavior. You know, I, and I think it bears repeating that four and five, f- doing step four, it, it's not easy because, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it requires some work. It requires sitting down with some paper and a pen and looking at your behavior, looking at myself and, and writing this stuff down. and It requires honesty. It and, does. And that could be scary. And my ego doesn't want me to do that. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the tough part of step four, but it's really not that bad. Mm-mm. And we do such a disservice to people who have never done a fourth step when we make it out to be this big beast of a thing. It's not. Yeah, it helped me to hear that it's really just a matter of looking at the things that I do that don't work. Yeah. And don't I want to look at that? Don't I want to figure that out and not do that? With the knowledge that that getting those things addressed and by working through this program and, and getting a relationship with my higher power, that gets me to where I don't want to drink anymore. That thing that was killing me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do want to look at those things. I do want that help to get that awareness so that I can let go of these things and be who it is I'm supposed to be, rather than continuing to <laughs> to bulldoze my way through life, stepping on people's toes left and right, and just ultimately being miserable and not wanting to feel that. Definitely, I agree. When doing the four step, you know, going into it, I thought I was like such a nice person and I was really kind to people. (laughs) And, you know, I actually used to do like some volunteer work, but my motives were not in the right place when I was doing these things. It was always, what can I get out of this? Mm -hmm. And that was like definitely something I needed to look at because, you know, my mind, I'm this really nice person and I'm doing this volunteer work and I'm really kind to others, which wasn't the case because my motives are... Me, me, me. What can I get out of this? What can I get from you? You know, so looking at that and seeing my patterns of behavior has like really helped me to learn how to treat other people now. I like that. What's your recovery like now? What do you do to stay sober now on a daily? So seven years, what are you doing? Okay. I um, pray and I always try to meditate at least once a day. I try to read some sort of literature. What do you mean by meditate? Well, on and off, I've um, tried like some sort of guided meditation because sometimes my mind will be racing too much and I can't like concentrate to like, you know, being that place to turn my brain off. And so, you know, sometimes I'm in that place, but sometimes I definitely needed the guided meditation to like slow my mind down and focus on whatever it is I need to meditate on. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be something going on in my life at the time, or it could be like anything, or it could just be like, I've read through something and I kind of want to meditate on that and like really think about it. And so I try to meditate every day. Sometimes it's a guided meditation. Sometimes I don't do it till night and like, okay, let's meditate before I go to bed. Mm -hmm. But I try to like stick to the basics of, you know, praying, meditation, reading some literature, talking with other alcoholics and going to a meeting. So that's pretty much every day. Yes. Yeah. Do you go to a meeting every day? I go to a meeting um, five days a week. There's Mm -hmm. two days a week that I close at work that I have really long days, so I don't go those days, but I'm always in contact with other alcoholics. And I actually um, brought some literature to work with me so I can read it while I'm at work when we're slow. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it turns out, I I can't do, I can't hold myself to a commitment to do all the things Mm -hmm. every day. But I have this wonderful toolkit that I can select many different things from throughout the days. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I get agitated, I know I can pause because sometimes I can deal with some people at work and they just really make me want to pull my hair out. But I have that tool like I can pause, 
when agitated and I could say a little prayer, like whether it be the serenity prayer or like prayer for patience, whatever it is. But I have that today and that's an awesome thing. I love that. I have a friend who, uh, who said uh, to me many years ago <laughs> that the pause comes from meditation. And I'd be curious to know if, if how, how long has your meditation practice been consistent? Um, so it's been on and off. I'll do it really well for like several months and then I'll kind of fall off and then like I'll get back on track and it'll be like another six months. So it kind of, you know, sometimes life happens and I kind of, oh, well, it's uh -huh. been a week or whatever since I meditated. So yeah. I try to like hold myself to that. Like you're doing a disservice to yourself by not doing this. So I have to do it, you know, for me and my recovery. And so with, with all this time of on again, off again, sounds mm -hmm. like mostly on though, mm -hmm. uh, meditation, is your experience that the pause be has become more easily done? Oh, definitely. In the first couple of years, it was really hard and I struggled with meditation and I kept remembering like, okay, pause, you know, like when you're getting agitated. So at that point, you know, I was trying to practice that, but like it took me a couple of years to really like get meditation. I thought it was like the hardest thing. And when people would share about it in meetings, I'm just like, how can they so easily do this? I couldn't understand. I've gone back and forth with it. You know, I've done like hour long meditations on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And at one point I was doing these hour long meditations and I was really trying to achieve a high <laughs> off of the meditation <laughs> to like to move to another level of existence to you know to, to you were trying to levitate weren't you to levitate <laughs> i could see that i wanted to uh, be able to float through walls <laughs> i wanted some magic power uh, i wanted what i got out of acid that's really what it does. Putting a lot of expectations on meditation, are so, we? Uh, thinking, just, thinking just, you might need to do the sweat lodge so meditation. That's why I was doing. That, that's right? why I was spending an hour doing it, and I was spending a long time because I was really, you know. But no, more seriously, I was trying to transcend, doing transcendental stuff. And at one point, we had eaten dinner, and I was on my front porch, and I was meditating, and I could hear my wife in the kitchen cleaning up, and. The reading before meditation was on selfishness. <laughs> and at one point I said, you need to get up and go help. Oh, that did not go where I thought it was going, because I figured you were going to say something about having yelled at her to be quiet because you were <laughs> meditating. No. <laughs> no. I'm meditating in here. Shut up. <laughs> hey, give me some space. I'm meditating over here. <laughs> Very spiritual. <laughs> No, no, it it actually worked, and I saw what was actually going on, and I went in and and helped to clean up, and then continued to do that. So, you know that that's meditating for the wrong reasons, but <laughs> but I've gone through, so I've cut back on it because also setting it up to the place that I was doing. A long breathing meditation, a lot of practice with it. It was basically like practicing the piano. It became an hour. First, I got to run scales, then I've got to play this piece, then I got to do. And it just became a lot of work, and then it became like a hurdle. And then I wasn't doing it because it was so much. I was going, mm. I was suggested, why don't you just do five minutes and just have some quiet time? So I've done that and different things. Right now, I'm not doing very long meditation. I'll do a breathing for five or six breaths really is all I do, though I do the prayer every day and talking with another alcoholic and going to meetings regularly. I think that is being in the center of AA, being involved in AA and, you know, working on the podcast, talking to other alcoholics, having it be a central part of my life um, is what gives me the pause, the ability to pause when agitated. Because when I'm doing all that, it's kind of like a uh, wood stove. There's, uh, It's easy to start a fire in a wood stove if you've got coals mm. in the bottom of it. And that's what going to meetings and doing the daily prayer does. It's like it becomes readily available. And, oh, I can pause when agitated. And I've had that experience 
recently, you know, or fearful, being fearful, and then go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to ask God to direct my thinking and then move forward. And remembering to do that is the trick. Yeah, my meditation practice has been an on-again, off-again, mostly off uh, type of thing. The, the time that I did it most regularly was when I was working with a conference that was being held here in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, that time, I knew that the amount of work, the amount of organization, the responsibility, all that that was going on was going to be very stressful, and I needed the benefit of meditation to pause, to, to just kind of to take it, take it as it comes, so to speak. And it worked beautifully. And then when the conference was over, I stopped. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I do. Um, what about a daily prayer practice? Uh, that, I hit my knees when I'm getting out of bed. Uh, that is, is absolutely the first thing I do in the morning. Uh, and then I, you know, I do little send-ups throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so it, it, Send up as a prayer. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. Prayer for me, I think it says something in our book, something about prayer. I'm horribly paraphrasing this, but, <laughs> but prayer becomes like air or water to us, like breathing, or Ooh. it's just something that we do. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened for me, is that prayer is just like that. I have not practiced meditation consistently enough that meditation has become that. I've just recently started going to yoga, taking that uh, a couple times a week, and a uh, massage therapist that I go to has also been like, Sam, you really need to meditate. So I'm getting (laughs) meditation from various angles, Uh, and so maybe as I'm being bombarded by people telling me to meditate, (laughs) I will pick it up again. But I I lack the self-discipline to do it daily. Yeah. When I first got sober... (laughs) I've got a lot out of doing a meditation right after work because the hardest time for me was to transition from work to home life. And that was a time where I always drank. I always went to the bar for happy hour. I always, I didn't drink at work. So it was medication (laughs) instead of meditation. I I had a rule that I'd be an alcoholic if I were to drink at work. So I um, didn't drink at work. earlier and and earlier. (laughs) It was like, and and then I had to realize once I got into AA, I began to realize that, oh, Thinking about drinking all day at work <laughs> is kind of the same thing as drinking. I mean, it's it's still an obsession with alcohol, and maybe it's controlling me instead of me controlling it. So the illusion fell apart. But that transition time was really hard. So I would go to the park after work and spend 15 minutes in prayer and meditation, sitting under a tree. It was in the, I got it was in the summertime sounds nice that's some good practical advice yeah it was great and and i really enjoyed sitting there and seeing people so then this is ego i guess coming in i was was like going superiority i'm sitting there going none of these people jogging look at them racing (laughs) racing along not me i'm sitting here being empty this was the wee beginnings of the spiritual gas giant calling a spiritual <laughs> gas giant. <laughs> you, you flatulent thing. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't expect that one, did you? <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> I can totally relate to what both of you are saying. And, you know, I wasn't always a drinker at work. It just got to that point, um, probably like the six months previous, like where I just kept crossing all those boundaries and started drinking at work. But I still, you know, was performing my job every day, so I saw nothing wrong with it. Right. And so, and what Sam was talking about with meditation, what I had to do, like, early on, I had to, like, put myself reminders out. Like, I'd have something beside my bed. I'd set, like, phone reminders because, you know, I wasn't used to doing these things. So it was like, okay, remember to do this, you know, because... You think about in your first year, you're giving like so much stuff. You're like a little sponge and you're trying to suck it all up, you know, and practice all these things. But it's a lot of things. And so for me, like having a reminder was really, really helpful. That's a really good point. I In my first year, I had a reminder in my phone. It wasn't an iPhone either. 
Um, <laughs> I had a reminder in my phone to pray. Mm -hmm. I also had a reminder that fired off twice a day telling me to call someone. Uh, That's and, great. And and that, that helped. So thanks for that reminder. Yeah, that, that's really good. I had a practice. I'm a painter. And so at work, I would have to go to the truck for something all the time during the day. And I've said, okay, every time I go to the truck, that's an opportunity to stop and pray and release everything, breathe for a moment, come back to the present moment, let go of the things I can't control. And so I made that a trigger. And I've heard of people doing Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Dick Not Don? No, this would be Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> talks about letting the telephone ring be a bell of mindfulness. So every time the bell rings... An angel gets its wings. You, <laughs> <laughs> you take a moment, breathe, come back to the present moment, and then your conversation when you pick up the phone is probably going to be a lot better than mm, if you were to pick point. it up right, out, right off the bat going, um, you know... <laughs> razzle, frazzle, fricka, fracker. Good practical advice. And I've got some good practical advice for you, Amber. Okay. Protect your head. Duck, here it comes. <laughs> Incoming. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at the time. Sunny. <sighs> Thanks, Pops. <laughs> if you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. We have a question. Our question is from Henry in Cookville, Tennessee. Henry asks, what is the work it takes to be powerless? Hmm. Interesting question. Mm -hmm. I'm letting go just as hard as I possibly can. <laughs> I, that's, what is the work it takes to be powerless? I remember being in a meeting and someone said that he felt like recovery was something that he needed to apply and he needed to bear down on. You know, I've got to bear down and I've got to not drink and I've got, you know, exert my will. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. Uh, recovery is letting go. And it's the strangest idea. It's an alien idea to me, to the way that I thought, that I need to let go of the world rather than bear down on it. Instead of trying to control events, I need to be available to events. It's an entirely different way of thinking about the way that the world works that I've learned in recovery of, that I've learned in AA. I like the idea of every day asking God to direct my thinking and then being available to what's put in front of me because, okay, I'm, I'm going to allow that my higher power puts things in front of me and then I can respond to them. And that's very effective way to live, it turns out, though it's the exact opposite than what you would learn in management training seminars, <laughs> where <laughs> you need to envision the future and make it happen. Bulldoze it. And bulldoze. Power, power drive, power drive my yes. way. I heard a tape of Bill W. talking about the 12 traditions, and he, was, he said, power drivers like me need to check that power driving impulse. Mm -hmm. It's odd that, like, my business did very well after I began to let go. I felt like people aren't going to call me unless I worry that they're going to call me. And so, you know, I'm going <laughs> to somehow or other, I make my business work by worrying about it. Well, it's not true. And it definitely works to let go of that and then be available to what I can do today in my work. I would go to work and I'd what's the best I can do today? And then at the end of the day, look back on it and see if I've done my best that day. And mm -hmm. if I have, people appreciate that and they can feel that. And they feel the integrity of, I had a, um, 
my sponsor's sponsor was a a developer. What do you call it? Somebody flips houses and um, a house flipper. Yeah, a house flipper. <laughs> house flipper. <laughs> and so he would buy property and fix it up and then resell it. And he told the story of the first time that he bought a house and the bathroom floor was rotten. And what he had always done, if there was, if it was rotten, is just put something down over top of it and sell it as quick as possible. And this time he's going to, even though nobody could see it, he ripped out all the rotten, rebuilt it from the bottom up, and put a new floor in. The house sold within three or four days of when he was finished. And he said he thought what happened was people that he was talking to could feel from him his integrity because he was proud of that this house mm-hmm. and, and the work that had been done in it. And they could feel that with confidence. People can feel you, kind of. You know, they can feel like if you're hiding something, or if you, they can feel with me in my work doing a mural or something like. They can feel if I'm rushing and I need to. You know, I'm really focused on getting out of here as quick as possible. Or am I taking my time and doing the best that I can do? So this is all part of letting go of all of it and being available and just showing up to what's in front of me staying focused, being in the present moment. That's what the work of letting go is. Thank you, Don. Amber, can we read that again? No, it's about um, being powerless, Mm -hmm. right? Thank you, Don. You shared a lot of good stuff, so it makes it hard to go second. And poor (laughs) Sam has to go third, because I definitely agree with everything that you said. For me, I remember looking at the first step. You know, I thought I had, like... A lot of power over stuff. I was a very like selfish, self-centered like person. So looking at the first step, my sponsor's like, okay, you need to make a list of things you have power over and that you're powerless over. And making those lists, you know, I saw there was very little that I actually could control. And so for me, it was really cool because that like lifted a weight off of me. And showed me like, okay, you need to let go of these things because there's nothing really you can do about it. You can pray about situations, but like you have no control over that actually. Looking at that and seeing, you know, actually what I had power over helped me to become more free because it was like a weight had been lifted off of me. It was the beginning of teaching me like getting involved in service to not like focus on myself to try to help other people like we do in, you know, in the 12 steps. So with that, it, you know, just showed me like, okay, this is, um, you're going to start building on that and becoming a better person and letting go of things, which took a lot of practice, you know, because when you're doing something for so many years and it's ingrained in you, it's, it's hard to, you know, start a new behavior. And so, yeah, thanks, Don. See, you said so many good things. It's hard for me to, like, say something. (laughs) It's not a competition. I know. I know. You said some good stuff, too. I really like that. What about you, Sam? Ditto. (laughs) I mean, after i got to follow up you guys. I'm just going to say ditto. No. um, (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that that popped into my mind with this question is uh, deep water. And that thing that I learned so long ago in, in learning uh, senior life-saving classes, and that was a person who is struggling in deep water is going to sink. As soon as they stop struggling and they relax, they float. And that is such... I mean, I've got chills with that one. <laughs> that, that is such a wonderful analogy for being powerless. There's so much that I will rail against and flail and struggle, and, and I'm getting nowhere and, and quite likely making it worse. Yet when I just relax and give in, everything is fine. It may not be things I like, but everything is fine. And then you talking about the, the powerlessness in step one. I had a sponsor about three sponsors ago that part of the introductory work that he gave me when we first sat down and talked, the homework he gave me was sit down 
and in five-year chunks from birth, write down where you were powerless. Wow. And that was an interesting exercise twofold in that it showed me so many ways of powerlessness over the years. And it also, when I reviewed it with him, helped him to get to know me and me at him a bit too, because there was some, some back and forth on it. It was a quick foray into getting to know each other. I didn't understand. I mean, I remember them talking about being powerless, not really understanding what it meant. What do you mean I'm powerless? I associated it with weakness. Mm-hmm. Me too. And it's really different than that. So I'm going to put you all on the spot. What's something going on in your life right now that you are powerless over? Something that you wouldn't have been powerless over before. Some place in your life that you're powerless and you really realize it. For me, I would have to say it would be custody of my daughters. It's been something that I've had to look at like my whole sobriety. And, you know, it took a while to like develop that relationship. And be able to see my kids because, you know, they're with their grandparents and they just saw me as this bad person because it's all they had ever seen since they knew me. And they're like, we don't trust you with your kids. And it was like really hard to like show them, you know, that I was working a daily program and that I wasn't that person anymore. Is this your parents or your my ex-husband's parents? Uh-huh. And they have yeah. custody? They do. When I went into treatment, they took custody and, uh, you know, it was, it took a while to actually have a relationship with them because they're like, well, I don't really know you're doing this because I remember coming there at around 90 days sober and they had a bottle of wine and they're marking it. They're like, well, we're going to leave, but you know, we're going to mark this to make sure that you haven't drank any, which I did not have the desire. I was there and I was focused on seeing my daughters, but they still saw me as that same person. Naturally. Yes. I mean, today it's great. They can see, you know, what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's, it's, it's been hard, and it's kind of hard of, like, me not wanting to pull them out of their life right now and be like, come with me, you know, as much as I want them. And what I've seen over the years is, like, for a long time, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to be, like, a full-time mom. And that was really hard to look at. How old are they now? They are 12 and 8. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter was five when I went into rehab, and the other one was 18 months. And so the great thing is today, they don't remember a drunk mom mm-hmm. at oh, all. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so I'm grateful for the program that has given me the ability to be there for them. Do you have a good relationship with them now? Oh, definitely. We have a great relationship. We talk almost every day. I get to visit them whenever I want, and they're going to be coming to visit me, too. So it's progress. Um, You know, trust me, I'd rather be like further along, but I'm grateful for what it is. And I understand that, you know, it takes time. So you're getting to a place of acceptance of powerlessness over that situation? Yeah. I mean, it's taken like the work in sobriety because like I didn't understand. I would be like, God, you know, like, why are you doing this to me? Playing the victim in that role right there. Like, why are you doing this to me? Like, Children should be with their mothers. But like what my higher power has shown me, like, you're not ready for this yet. And, you know, because it was like six months sober. I'm like, I want my kids back now. Mm -hmm. And I was still like a crazy newcomer. Like Mm -hmm. that would have been a disservice to me and to them. So, but you you said that now you feel like the don't want to jerk them out of their lives. Yeah. So what are the plans for the future? Do you want to? Well, I mean, I'd eventually love to get them. And, you know, my oldest daughter is like at an age where she can choose, but I don't want to put any pressure on her. Right. Like, um, because they've gone through enough in their life with their parents, you know. My ex husband's an addict and, you know, he's still on again, off again using. And so he doesn't really have a relationship with them. And they've been through a lot with, you know, with their parents. So, you know, I will definitely let them make that decision on their own much as I want them. It's beautiful because you're focused on giving them what they need rather than giving them what you want. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. You're able to love them, care for them, and work on letting go to see what's going to happen. Yeah, that was really hard for a while, but, you know, I've I'm continuously, like, it's been one of the things that I've 
had to work on through my sobriety, getting to that point like, well, you know, me doing this would be super selfish. You know, I need to think about their needs and what's best for them. It's great. It's beautiful. Mm. Do you have some place that you're powerless, <laughs> Sam? Yeah, I do. I jokingly say that my sponsor has stranded me on step seven. <laughs> I, you know, I throw him under the bus in a meeting earlier this week saying that, which was kind of fun. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's been a month since he and I sat down and talked about Step 7. And then the next week that we got together, we talked a lot. And then we haven't been able to get together the past two weeks. And so I've been very present to Step 7. You know, he directed me to, uh, to include the seventh step prayer in my daily prayer. And I've been looking at my list of shortcomings, not so much focused on character defects, but looking at the shortcomings. He pointed out a difference there. And one of the things that is interesting for me in this daily request to have every single defective character removed, which stands in the way of my usefulness to you, higher power, and and my fellows, is that other things have come up, other ways, other shortcomings have bubbled up. I'm not ready to share the specifics of what has come up, but it's a thing that, you know, I'm very powerless over this happening is one thing. I'm powerless over my shortcomings, and this is why I need access to power to help them be addressed. So I finally vocalized the, the big thing to a trusted friend last night, and one of the things that came to me, speaking of meditation earlier, is a, a meditation style that I, I found for me works a while ago is 30 breaths. And in the first 10 breaths, my little monkey mind is going nuts and bouncing all over the place. And in the next 10 breaths, it's settled down a bit and things that I'm aware of that require some attention are what's present in my thoughts. And then in the last 10 breaths is where often, not always, something completely out of the blue bubbles up. My mind has quieted and something new presents. And it feels analogous to the four weeks that I've been on the seventh step that initially it was this list of things in front of me that I'm focused on. And now, you know, I've, I've had time for my mind to quote-unquote settle in the seventh step and something new is bubbling up. And I'm powerless over that and I'm a little afraid hmm. because I, I don't know where it'll go. Right. Can't control it. Can't control it. <laughs> but I'm willing to do the work. Counting my breathing is a a form of meditation that I've done a lot of, and I I find it really useful as a way to focus. And that, exactly as you said at the beginning, it's like my monkey mind. And over a period of time, if I keep doing it long enough, you know what I do is I do count to 10, and then I start over counting to 10 again, and I count to 10 again, (laughs) keep keep doing it that way. Mm -hmm. Except you got owls in your head, not a monkey mind. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) The owl in my head tells me we're running out of time. (laughs) This has been a good time. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it myself. And if I could say something really quick. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, so what Sam was talking about, I completely like relate to. And like when he was sharing about the powerlessness, what really helped me with that was Drop the Rock. Mm-hmm. On six uh-huh. and seven, because I remember even at the beginning of the, the book, book, the yes, book dropped the rock. Yeah, the book dropped the rock at the beginning of the book. Like they're talking about somebody, you know, like sinking. It was like, hey, if you just let go of this big rock, you can be safe. You can live, you know. But it's like we want to hold on to things so much, and it's just doing a disservice to ourselves. We're not getting anything out of it. We're just sinking and sinking, sinking lower. And so that shows you like in an analogy right there, like, okay, you know, let go of things so you can get better. Amber, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great. a great time. <laughs> thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. 
Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Would you like to join a free anonymous online AA group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. 